coffee and a little bit of conversation. Hello everyone, welcome to Conversations and Coffee Podcast. My name is Ross Fagan and I will be your host. In this episode of Conversations and Coffee Podcast, we chat to Glenn Murray and Dara O'Carroll, whom both have very different and unique backgrounds, but yet their journeys have so much in common. So much so, this has brought them back together, having met in Whistler, Canada a number of years ago, both chefs, to reunite in their friendship recently when Glenn had seeked for professional help for a mental illness in which would be diagnosed as ADHD and OCD. Glenn is spreading a beautiful and incredibly powerful message about speaking up, seeking professional support and expressing mental health openly and not bottling it up inside like many people still in this day and age are doing. Dara's mission is to spread awareness around Irish agriculture, heritage and true passion for Irish food and produce. In this episode, Glenn and Dara are both on board Dara's pirate ship, the Ran, sailing the Irish seas on an adventure around the country whilst cooking beautiful, fresh, organically sourced Irish food. Enjoy episode 57, folks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations and Coffee podcast. Today, I'm joined here with Glenn Murray and Dara O'Carroll, who are both right now on a pirate ship, believe it or not. Um, usually, when you hear the word pirate ships, you think of Johnny Depp or you think of years ago and you think it's some sort of uh, made-up myth stories. No, it's real. There are real-life pirates here now in 2020, and you're looking at two of them right here now. Um this isn't about a pirate ship, and this isn't about um, the two lads meeting together and being uh, where they are right now during COVID-19. It's about kind of their journeys to get to where they are now, and that's why I've asked them on. So I'd like to maybe start with Glenn and kind of hear Glenn's story. What it was like growing up in Dublin, um, you know, your love for boxing, um, and then that kind of want and that hunger to travel and be adventurous. And uh, then we can move over to Dara and then... I'm sure everybody's interested to find out how the two of you kind of met and uh, are where you are now. So maybe, Glenn, you can start off, yeah? No problem, old man. Get the ice cubes ready because I've bleeding burned the ears off you. So if I'm, <laughs> if I'm rambling on too much, let me know. But uh, basically, long story short, um, I was born, grew up in uh, Devney Gardens and um, kind of lived from there, moved in with uh, my grandmother. And to start the story off... Uh, basically uh, in school I went to school in O'Connell Secondary School and at the time I didn't understand who I was and I kind of I look back now and the chaos started then like you know there'd be stuff where teachers would be like upset with me not concentrating in class and it would be nuts I would do the most outrageous stuff you know one time I pretended to be like I spreaded fucking rumours about the teacher that he got abducted by gay burgers and all stuff that is funny but when does it stop kind of if you make sense because a lot of people don't take me serious for the for of course because of spreading ridiculous rumors like that. But um from there, like then when I was getting into trouble, one time I pretended to be deaf, you know, and because I didn't want to get into trouble with my mom and my grandfather to beat the shit out of me. And then they sent me to the Irish school of Herden and Cabra. And amazingly I got hundred percent in the herding test, you know what I mean? Because I wasn't deaf, I was just playing stupid. So I grew up from there, I was kind of went on a chaos mission of like not understanding who I really was. Um Everybody would say, you know, Glenn, you need you need to get professional help. You need, first of all, addiction has ripped my family apart. Um, alcoholism has destroyed my whole family from my great grandfather all the way down. So then I went on a bad run, drinking alcohol. You know, um, fortunate enough, I never done drugs because it was kind of jammed into my head. You know, stay away from drugs. What will do? What will do to you? But it was never jammed into my head what alcohol would do to you because it's kind of it's more accepted. So from there, um. I was getting into trouble. I was getting like arrested a lot, getting getting into trouble in school. So I was causing trouble for my mum. My mum couldn't uh, my mum couldn't handle 
the uh, the pressure. So my grandmother that has just passed away, she kind of looked after me, put me in, and she under she went through her own chaos. So she couldn't see him beyond the chaos that at the end of the day I'm human. So kind of Derek Ahern took me under his wing as in in um as as a boxer in St. Saves Olympic Boxing Academy. And from there it did it helped save my life. But also I went down a sketchy road, a like really crazy road because I would train for I was never going to be this talented boxer. I started when I was 16. So 10-year-olds, you start boxing when you're 10. So I was always had to do that extra bit of work. And although with the negative around my ADHD, but the positives, I, I always believed in myself. I would train. If someone's doing five miles a day, I train 10 miles a day. And always in that vision was, I knew I was always going to become Irish champion. So, But I had to train 10 times harder than them. So basically, I started training. Then I got... got to my first Irish final in my first year competing against Paddy Barnes, he went to three Olympics and he beat me and I was kind of heartbroken. So then I would go out drinking, partying, kind of depressed from losing, suffering with mental illness, didn't even know at the time. And then from there, I would go back training and then it started getting worse and worse. And I remember one night, I was in a nightclub in Reds and um, if there's a girl listening to this, uh, from, the bottom of my heart, from the bottom of my heart, um. I want to apologise for, for my behaviour and for the way I've acted because, as I was saying, when you put addiction on top of that energy, you don't understand it. It can get, you can come close to the, to the end very, very quickly. I've lost so many friends through mental illness. And I was in a club and basically, long story short, um, I was acting the bollocks with this girl and some, something happened. I came back and I got, uh, I got stabbed in the head, stabbed near the heart. Woke up in James's hospital, didn't know what the fuck was going on. And from there, I was like, I still could, I was delusional to the problem because no matter how many people tell you you have a problem, you know, you don't know if you're delusional. So without rambling on too much about that because it's not what I'm here to talk about. But basically from there, I went back training, finally got, reached three national finals, then won one Irish title. So I was kind of sick of, not sick of, look, I did, I was always kind of wanted to be creative, but I never had a proper job. And it was always kind of Derek Ahern looked after me with helping, helping in the boxing community. So I was kind of sick of doubling and I thought I hated doubling, how people didn't, under, didn't understand me. You know, Glenn is always crazy. And looking back now, I can say, yeah, of course you would have thinking that I was crazy. But if you eliminate, the problem was never ADHD or the problem was never me. The problem was addiction and alcohol. Mixing with that. If you take that away, I would have never done half of that stuff. So from there, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to Australia. Um, of no experience and I always was so adventurous so I just boarded a one-way flight and um, I want to thank uh, a girl named The Dream by the way that's all I'd say without her I wouldn't be sitting in this position today and I wouldn't have found myself this much because she looked after me and she showed me the ropes and she was there when I needed her most and um, basically from there I moved to Australia and started finding myself you know I knew I was working in constructions, uh, construction firms and basically wasn't there was never never a strong worker, was always the weakest, but I would always I would always try. So from there, they started like they wouldn't let me do the work. They put me in the lift because they used to like love me for my energy and I'd give them some crack. So then they'd give me jobs that like they'd make me sweep the floor or stuff like that. So from there I was like I knew I was the best lawyer on planet Earth. You know, I knew that I could rock up to NASA and talk my way into I was always good at talking my way in and out of stuff. So I started talking my way into crocodile farms, like traveling with circuses and just like I was obsessed with, with living this life. I come from uh, Sheridan Court, Doris Estuary, and same with Drummond. It's an unprivileged area. I always knew that, you know, not that I'm better than anyone, but that I wanted a better life than, 
you know, going down the road of addiction, selling drugs or whatever it was. I just wanted to live the dream. Like, and I didn't give a fuck how I was going to get it, whether I was going to lie, whatever, I was going to work hard. So from there, basically, uh, I, came, I moved to Cambodia. And in Cambodia, I was uh, running pub crawls. It was like nuts. I was dressed as Spider-Man. I was getting paid $50 a week to run pub crawls and just lived the dream. So kept kind of building contacts. <clears> and the more, the more contacts that I was building, the more like it was easier to travel. So moved to Vancouver, ended up working on, on a... And this is where the captain of the ship comes in, which is kind of amazing. And it's kind of crazy how, how we got to here. So basically, living in, living in Whistler, Canada, and me and Dara was kind of always kind of, we had a lot of energy, you know, a presence we would bring to the party and kind of, you know, we were out one night and I met him, I introduced to, I got introduced him to a friend and we we're on the same level. Everyone would kind of be like, these two guys are crazy, you know? We had the same vision of, we wanted to live the dream. We wanted to live the high life. We didn't care about money. There was something more we were searching for. So I said, he says to me, Glenn, what would you do if you won the lotto tomorrow? And I says, because uh, obviously at the time I was obviously mentally disturbed. I was off me playing rocker. And uh, I says, I'd, um, I'd buy a cherry picker. I'd drive around the Congo and I'd give out free pa- food parcels with a four jack and a, and a crown. And I says to him, what would you what, what would you do? He says, I'd buy a porter ship and I'd put all the money inside the porter ship and I'd sail the seven seas and just live the dream. And we were laughing and then everyone was like, you know, you guys are crazy. So really long story short to come, which is kind of, kind of I'll finish off on how we met and how I'm sitting on the boat. Um, from there, I kind of walked in the kitchens and I was YouTubing how to cook, uh, cooked in the ivy for all these really top of the range chefs. So started kind of, became sober when my best friend, uh, Mark died, I was like, I wasn't happy. I was living inside a castle in Sweden. And I was like, hold on a fucking minute. How, if, if you're not happy um, living in a castle in Sweden, then, you, then you'll never be happy. Do you know what I mean? And one of my friends told me, one of my friends says, uh, he says, Glenn, the, the Glenn that's coming off on social media is not the Glenn that I know. You're mentally disturbed and you need professional help. He was like, Kid Dynamite is his name. He was like, you need to sort your life out. But he says, if you listen to me, if you don't want to get professional help, he says, shut your phone down. And when you shut your phone down, replace all that scrolling with educating yourself with addiction. Will you read these books for me? And I says, yeah, I'll do it. And then all of a sudden got all the answers I was looking for. So then from there, I started, um, I started cooking my way around the world, Sweden, New Zealand. And I got a contact for an island named Atotaki, one of the most secluded islands in the world. So I got flown there. and I always follow my heart. My heart tells me to go somewhere. My heart tells me to do something. Then it happens. So I knew something in my mind was telling me something that island is calling me. I need to go there. And the aim of that was, to finish the story, was I wanted to build a CV, a resume. I left on welfare, but I wanted to build a CV to be able to cook on super yachts, to make a good life for myself, to make a good living, to look after my family, look after the people that have helped me. So when I get there, it didn't go down too well. Um, it was... I had a mental breakdown, you know, I got my own private island, and I had all this, I had like two grand a week, and I had a CV that could go anywhere, and I went to this, this island called One Foot Island, and it was like, a girl flew in from Australia to see me, and she's like, Glenn, she's been to 100 countries, and she says, I've never been to anything like this, you actually live there, live here, and all of a sudden, I felt like, for the first time in my life, I felt very ungrateful, very fucking ungrateful, and I just wanted, the best way to describe it is I just wanted to die. And um, I started hearing voices. Everything became so fucking dark. And it just goes to show that even sober, even in paradise, we can lose our mind. So then I called my mum and I, I kind of I got out of the island and I wasn't cooking that I was searching for. What I was searching for, a career 
in guiding people with mental illness and a career in like, you know, writing. So I come home, basically, long story short, and I get myself a girlfriend, a very beautiful girlfriend and everything. I bury me in my grandmother. And it's like I'm meant to come back to, to be there in time for my grandmother. I had scary thoughts and I was in the park. I was dressed in all bright colours and everybody was like, oh, can we take a picture? Your, your outfit's amazing. But deep, deep down on the inside, I was in pain. But nobody could see. You can't see mental illness. Do you know what I mean? You think like, I threw a phone at my fucking mother there two months ago. And then the next day she says, ah, you just don't think much. They can't see it. But it's, it kills me because every night I go to sleep thinking of Mark, you know, because the information that I have that could, could help people. So then all of a sudden, the day, the very day that I get assessed, yeah, I get the answers that what I'm looking for my whole life, right? Um, I get diagnosed with ADHD and OCD plus, right? And mind you, my girlfriend was like, you need to come over to meet my friends. And she's mixed race, you know, Arabic, Polish. So she's so like traditional and, you know, you have to live by, uh, live by the book. So um, I was like, I get this message, right? Glenn, hey Glenn, remember the partnership I was talking about? I just landed in Dublin. So I'm like, I'm like, uh, First of all, when he faced on me, kind of, me head, you meet that so many people, you meet thousands of people on the road, you know what I mean? And then I was like looking at his face and I couldn't really think. And then I got off the phone and then I'm scrolling through his pictures and then I'm like, that can't, this can't be happening. The universe can't, this can't be happening. And then I remembered, I was like, what the actual fuck? I was like, five years ago, I randomly bumped into this guy that is like, says that he's, if, he had, if he won the lottery, he's going to sail the seven seas on a quarter ship, right? And he calls me. <laughs> be part of his crew. So I call my girlfriend and I'm like, listen, I'm sorry, I'm going on a blade partnership. This is a this is a chance of a lifetime. And because I've got accepted into Trinity. So it's it just worked out just so magical that the chances are, what's the chances that I come back in time from my grandmother's funeral, the chances that I've been cooking and that Dara has been cooking in these Michigan stars too. But truly nice in the bin the cook oils and swore I'd never cook again. And here I am in a partnership with the captain. So that's that's pretty much me. That was very, like, I didn't really give you an awful lot of time, but you really crammed everything in really well. You explained it great. And you kind of created this bit of a vision in my head of what, like, what that journey was like in, in like, a short amount of time. I was able to actually put myself in your shoes for a minute. But um, I want to just ask, yeah. so, so, Derek, you won the fucking lotto then, yeah? <laughs> well, yeah, it looks like it, you know. I have my... You know, you, you fulfilled your... Um, you fulfilled your dream from Nookrove to a pirate ship. Um, so that's that's a great way of putting it because it now kind of, without you probably even mean, Nicklin, you then introduced Dara um, through your story. So you were on your journey, your own complete uh, finding yourself, really, you could say. Yeah. I mean, the cooking was a way of making money. It didn't matter what you were doing. It clearly didn't matter whether you were uh, working, you know, doing pub crawls in a Spider-Man suit or, or cooking fabulous meals. It wasn't really about that. It was doing all these things, but trying to search for you behind it all. Um, yeah. You look, you look. I don't know you personally, but you look like you are in a pretty good mental state at the moment. You look happy. You look content. Uh, you, you, then you also you give off this vibe where you kind of, I don't know if you mean this, but you kind of give off this vibe like you're one of us, but you're not. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's um. But speaking of that, just really quick, it's there. A lot of people kind of don't understand me, and and the thing is, really quick, it's like because of my energy, because of me 
it's not that I've always not that I'm trying to be different. I'm just like like even for instance, political correct here, and I don't want to be called out on a racism card or called out on anything, but it's just like like you know how a lot of Dublin people and Irish people speak. If I like basically I call them I put up a picture um about Dara the other day and I says the greatest human being that ever lived, right? Now my life coach, I'm I'm only alive because of him. He's dynamite is his name. And he kind of uh, got upset and that it was kind of coming across as some people, sometimes they do come across of having this ego. But deep down, it, it, I didn't mean that Dara was the greatest human being of all time, that he's better than anybody. What I meant by expressing myself like that, I meant that Dara has done outrageous things with his life and coming from this, the same living that I've done. And I know how hard it is to, to do that. So when I come across, some people do, when it's like, if you don't know me, you would, you would kind of, I would get a lot of hate or negativity, yeah? But if you were in a room with me, you'd kind of understand a bit more because my mind, like, just kind of, it's like a Ferrari on bicycle brakes. I don't mean any harm, boy. I'm not, I'm not special. I'm not different. You know what I mean? It's, I come from, from Sheridan Court. I come from the same place that where all the other people do. And that's, that's basically it. No, I think, I think, I know what you're saying. It's, it, it's, it's uh, so true. But what I think what I'm trying to say is it wasn't that. It was actually that you're one of us. But yeah. yeah, you're taking us on a journey that most of us won't get to live. So what I'm trying to say is, a guy like you that has come from the area you've come from, you're probably not meant to be doing the things you're doing now. Um, yeah. And when I say when I say meant, I mean like genuinely coming from Odebney Gardens. Like how many other people have been to the countries you've been to, have lived the experience you've lived, have got the box Paddy Barnes. So what I'm trying to say is. You are one of us. Like, like we can relate to you, but yeah, yeah, you're not one of us because you're doing things way, way different, which is amazing. It's so inspirational because we look at that and we go like, "Fuck, I want to fucking float down to Waterford and jump on that boat with them. That looks like great crack." But like, <laughs> chance, chance, chances of that happening very slim. So that's why I think you need to be proud of yourself in the sense that what you're putting up on Instagram isn't flash, isn't ego, isn't look at me, I'm on a boat. It's Look at me, I'm living. Yeah, and even that boys the people, and Dara will tell you as well, it's because of Dara I'm here, because of you, I'm on this, and it's, it's the people, and that's what Dara will get into when he talks to you in a minute. That's what he's here for. He came from Norway to here to, to bring back for the people, like the agriculture back, you know, mm. so definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's the people. I think that's a great way of saying it, like, you know, you can have many opportunities in life and you can have many experiences, but most of the time it's down to the people you meet and what what sort of pathways they kind of pave for you. Yeah. Thanks so much for that, Glenn. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, I want to kind of hear Dara's story and then I want to maybe, you know, open the floor to like, you know, some things you'd like to spread awareness on, both of you, you know, I mean, having been around the world and seeing many things that most of us probably haven't, what can you kind of give to us from that experience? So I'll let Dara maybe... Uh, introduce himself and kind of give us a bit of a background of how you kind of got to the ship and 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 Mechlen. What was your what was your kind of version of that like? Yeah, so when I when I was young, like really young, always really passionate to travel, always adventurous, always fairly wild, like you know. So when I was about sixteen to eighteen, worked in a butcher's in Tablet Street. From there, kind of start trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, like you know. And I always wanted to travel, so I was like, where's my ticket to travel? How can I get around the world without having hassle, always having money in my pocket? So I was just thinking cooking. You know, I can cook in every city in the world. I can probably get accommodation 
in every city in the world from cooking in restaurants. So I then began traveling. But before I began traveling, during college, I was put into very hard restaurants in Dublin. So it was kind of like Michelin high-end restaurants. So you're doing heavy hours, really intense work environment, but super incredibly talented people all around you, very inspirational, very passionate, very intricate food, very good ingredients, a lot of education within the restaurants I was in. So I dropped out of college very quick from that. I was looking at the educational experience I was receiving from highly educated chefs, but that were more passionate. They weren't just textbook chefs. These were guys who were in there at seven o'clock in the morning till half one at night, without a break, all day. Like you're running off your feet, you're losing, starting to lose weight, you know, it, it gets a bit crazy in some kitchens, the intensity, the volume, the pressure, staff dropped off and you're doing mad hours. So I got into a few of those kitchens, pretty hardcore. It was really, uh, the, the, the skills you learn in those kitchens, there's no point in messing around in any other kitchens, you'll be wasting your time for four or five years. When you get into really good kitchens, professional chefs, professional experience, you know your disciplines, you know your standards, and it's set. Then you've already set the bar because you know what the bar is. Before that, I never knew what the bar was. So then my bar was set. My skills had been ready. I said, now I can pack my bag with knives that are worthy of traveling. So I then began traveling, went to Canada, was working in Vancouver for a little bit, headed up to Whistler, kind of around Vancouver, Whistler, done a big hitchhiking trip from California up to Route 1. Because I was chefing, but I'd always save up, work in kitchen, save, 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 and then go on a wild adventure with all the money I saved and budget that adventure as tightly as possible. Tents, dumpster diving, like rooting out sources of food, making your money last, getting it as far as possible, hitchhiking, interconnecting, couch surfing, lots of different webs of traveling on a huge, very tight budget. So I was doing that to the maximum and pushing that as far as I could to get the biggest adventure out of the money that I had saved and cooking for people along the way. And then ended up in Whistler where I met Crazy Glenn, you know, and me and him got on like the two peas in a pod, like, you know, because the both of us were like the exact same, you know, as soon as we met each other, we both had the same energy and the both of us were completely wild, but we had never met each other in a sense that when we met each other, we'd never really gone out on an adventure together. But I, I seen his eyes, you know, I just looked into his eyes. And you know when you look into someone's eyes and you can just tell by looking in their pupil, he's, <laughs> a, he, he's a wild man. You know, he's a wild boy. You know? we, got, we, got a, we got a wild one on our hands there, boys. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, there's a wild bio on the loops, you know? And, 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 so, here, and, and he needs to be tamed. <laughs> he, he needs to be tamed, you know what I mean? He needs a fine captain around his shoulders, you know what I mean? So, I, I, I had Glenn's eyes in my head the whole time, you know? So I, I knew this mad Irishman, he's out there gallivanting. But we'll eventually, eventually cross paths again, you know? So, with uh, Glenn's eyes in my head, and from Canada there, I went, then went on another adventure. Canada, I went down to Mexico, Mexico City. Flew straight into Mexico with the same ambition as traveling very short budget, get as far as I possibly can and see what adventure unfolds from budgeting a traveling adventure. So went into Mexico, ended up hitchhiking on a honeymoon that was meant to be three days, lasted three weeks with a 
56 and a 63-year-old <laughs> went uh, sleeping in the car while they were in fancy hotels. Like, you know, and this was a, a consistent thing of hitchhiking, opening yourself to the universe. And when you let go fearlessly, the universe provides very graciously. So I, was, I then became aware of that magic and aware of the power of that magic. And then when I started to use that magic, it started, I began started to work with it very well. So what I gave back to people, I would cook for people for nothing. I would bring food over to people and give away almost everything I had. And it would be returned to me most graciously. So I then, where I learned to sail, I was cycling 450 kilometers on a little girl's bike. I had a little girl's bike. And, uh, you know, a little girl's bike with no, no, uh, I, it's all the money I had was to buy a little girl's bike. It was the only thing on the market at the time. So I started. No, don't by. be, give it over. Cut the lies there. You wanted the girl's bike. Tell the truth. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> it did have there a little bike. There, there was definitely other bikes, 100%. <laughs> That's true. No, well, no, not on the budget like this. But yeah, it was a perfect bike, you know. So at the end, well, midway, I met a fella and he was cycling from Mexico to Argentina. And I met him on a farm, a sustainable farm we were working on. And he was like, I'm going to sail to Argentina. I was like, I'll come with you, but I just have to get a bike. And he's looking at it, he's like, you're, you're going to join me on this thing. And I was like, I guarantee you, I'll keep with you. And I swear to God, I outpedaled him, like, you know. Yeah, come here. Many, many occasions, like, you know. So then we're going through and I, we arrive at this little cafe using a bit of Wi-Fi as you do. And a fella comes up to us, do you want to go on a sailing tour? I can bring it to snow days. We can go snorkeling. I can, you know, we'll have a packed lunch. It's a four or five hour tour. I'm going, nah, like we, we have our tents in the, the horse field around the corner, you know? And your man's going, well, do you have flights anywhere? And we're going, no, nah, no, like we've, we've no flights anywhere. And he was like, I really need sailors for the season. And we're going, definitely. We'll jumped on it. He trained us in. There was two boats, unrigged, damaged. He was like, you have two weeks to rig the boats, fix the boats, and then I'll train you. We rigged the boats in a week. He trained us, and within a week, we were taking tours of four to five tourists twice a day out on a sea lock, which was like red hot. Like, like, you know, I hadn't any experience. It's Mexico. There's no safety certificates. You're in full responsibility. The boss says, if anything happens, it's on you. If the boat goes down, you pay for it or you fix it. If you break it or you fuck anyone up, it's on you. So I was like, fuck it. He's giving me an opportunity. I think I had the confidence in it. So I went with that. Then that's where I learned to sail on five months of that, doing circuits, making lots of money, cycling around on a little girl's work, selling floors on the side of the road, you know, trying to flag tourists in, get them in. And from there went down... As the season ended, then I started hitchhiking through Guatemala. From Guatemala, I jumped to Colombia, worked in Peru for a bit. was completely broken, Peru. And then family took me in for a little bit. Got a job in a restaurant while volunteering in a hostel. Went back to Dublin. And then when I went back to Dublin, I was just such, through such a mad trip that I really wanted to get back into a kitchen. So I went back to uh, one Michelin star restaurant in the greenhouse. Now... This restaurant is the best chef I've ever met. Mikael Vienne in the greenhouse in Dublin. He, he just recently last year got a second star. Well deserved and I knew he would. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he went to three and it'd be the only three star in Ireland and I think he's probably the only person that would be able to push it that far, you know? So he was a very disciplined chef, the most talented man I've ever seen. An artist. He could put down six plates in a matter of seconds identically with eight components in a matter of seconds. The magic. 
you know, and everything cooked to a T. The man, he was just, he was fairly crazy, like, you know, but they always are. Like, to be that good, you have to be a bit crazy, like. Most geniuses um, have a little bit of craziness or madness to them, don't they? Yeah. They need to, you know, you need to have that edge to look beyond the box and kind of push things a bit further than everyone else is willing to, you know. They, so they channel I, into I, that toward eye a little bit more, don't they? Yeah, yeah, you know, they, they, they journey further than the norm, you know. So I worked with him then for a while. And then after working with him, I decided I was going to start working on kind of my own culinary interests. So, well, after working with him, I was working in a few different places like Jamie Oliver's down at Dundrum. Now, that was high volume, very good standard of cooking, but, you know, very high volume, very busy kitchen, very rock and roll instead of fine dining. Two different culinary environments. And then from there, I decided I was going to take on, I'd always been working for leaders, you know, and always been working for someone else's dream pushing for their dream, their ambition, their sights of what they could see. So I said, you know, I had all these things in my head. And I ended up going to Stockholm to work for a cooking company. Well, went over to work for a restaurant based around fire. Primitive cooking, only fire, no electricity, all old Norse techniques of cooking. Went over there. Worked there for a little while, then went to a three Michelin star called Oslo, called Maimo in uh, Oslo. Now, three Michelin star takes it to the next level of cooking. That's like the Zenergy or the Yogi of cooking. When the head chef has seen the Zenergy of a kitchen, he knows the flow and full Zenergetic energy that makes it all happen from tea the toe from the moment a person looks at the restaurant you already have they already have to be in the experience one star is about food and about wine two star is about food wine service three star is about when you walk into a restaurant you should be able to smell the chef you should be able to smell his taste from the moment you walk in when you look at the walls you should be able to it's like walking into his house when you walk into his house, you, you already feel him. You should already get a sense of whose house you just walked into when it comes to tree star. Hmm. So then within that environment, I was learning that food was more than just food. It wasn't just about what was on the plate. It was about what was on the plate, what was in the air, what's in the vibration of the, the whole place. Because tree star, it's not a just, it's a tree star is a, is a whole aroma, a whole, like the it's an experience in it the whole experience of you're bringing people on a journey and it's your journey your past your history is coming back out through food so from there i got a i got an opportunity and made contact there to work in a place called Svalbard, up the very northern point of civilization up north 360 degrees north about 2000 people so it's an old coal mining town that got turned into a tourist town there, there was a fine dining restaurant called Huset. Now, Huset was the oldest house that used to be a community house for all the coal mining workers. They would all go and they would all gather there. Now, there was a hierarchy. The top floor was like, you know, all the managers, they would go for dinner there. They would have really good chefs. And then it went down the ranks to the bottom floor where you'd have like the coal miners. So we had a restaurant built where the coal miners used to be. 
down the bottom of the house. So Air Restaurant was based around all local cuisine in Svalbard. It's just polar bears, very scenic, beautiful place. So we on our menu, we would have like seal tartare on a like a block of ice with seaweed and like smoke and stuff coming out of it and whale, reindeer, all this kind of local cuisine was on the menu. But at this stage, I had worked in so many places, seen so many techniques that I'm like, okay, I have to work on my own concept now, you know. And during all this, I'm very, I practice a lot of meditation and been through a lot of shamanistic journeys along the way through the Amazon and even up north with different shaman and different tribal communities. So I had also been very aware of these indigenous intelligence of medicinal properties of plants, medicines, body, mind, uh, environment, you know, health and all these sort of things. So I was always working on my body and my mind of journeying innerly just as much as the exterior. I find the inner is just as, as important as the exterior and the inner can take care of the exterior flow once it's acknowledged. So from there, I came back to Dublin, back to Ireland to help out uh, a chef who was pushing for the Michelin star down in Cork, a chef called Ahmed Jude, who worked in uh, Muse down in Cork. So he had been pushing for the Michelin star for two years and he said, you know, I have a feeling this summer, if we get the right team in, we'll get it. So he called me down with another chef who won Best Young Chef in Ireland there last year. And with another other guy, two other guys who had been in the greenhouse. So we had an all-star team. It was, uh, it was incredible. And we pushed it out for the summer. It was, it was six days a week, 17 hours a day. It, it was a bit mad, like, what we were doing. What we were doing, we were all living in the same house all for the same goal, all got on really well, amazing head chef, really into local cuisine, celebrating Irish foraging. So we had a, like two foragers that worked with us. They were collecting all the wild ingredients that had a lot of folklore, a lot of history around them. So after this then, I was like, okay, I'm, uh, I'm gonna be finished working for other chefs. And I'm gonna start this culinary journey myself. So I went down the line of uh, like I was planning on building all these primitive huts, like very primitive huts lined with sheep skins, reindeer skins. All you would have is sheep skins, reindeer skins, a fire, a few pots in a pan and a kettle. That would be your accommodation, like uh, glamping, but like primitive forest glamping. And with this kind of glamping experience, you would then have an underground restaurant that I was planning on building. And this underground restaurant was like in old days you had what was like an earth house where they used to have theatres and stuff. So a very deep hole in the ground, built with the same kind of um, thoughts of a coliseum. Your theatre is on the bottom and your guests sit over in a, a circle above. So planning was very being very minimalistic, about 12 customers. On the bottom circle, the lowest part of the earth house, you would have all your chefs only working off open fire. So fire, grill, pizza oven, no electricity, just sustainable produce, sustainable fuel, and working off an inner circle and say the 12 customers that are sitting above you can then look down and see everything that's going on. And from that, I was coming up with a conceptual menu of bringing people through a timeline of Irish history through food. Because I believe you can tell people a history story, you can tell them a fairy tale, but they can't taste it, they can't eat it, they can't go to that environment with a taste. 
So my plan was to give them a menu that brought them back to Irish history from route one, first settlers, the first indigenous species to inhabit Ireland with the first settlers techniques of cooking at the time. You would then offer someone the food, the story of how this is an indigenous native species that was part of a hunter-gatherer's diet back in the day. Then you would bring them onto the Iron Age, Stone Age, Vikings arrived, different species arrived, different animals and plants cultivated the island. And this created a modern form of technologies of cooking. And then you would start upping the cooking game, changing it up and starting going in with an old woman walking around telling about the folklore of the little plants and the little herbs that are on your plate. Because there's so many stories that are around these little plants and herbs that lie all around the island, you know? So I was working on that. I went through an entrepreneurial plan of that. And it was all great, but then I started to listen to five, six-year plans, and I went, oh, shit, I'm not a man for five, six-year plans, <laughs> you know? So I then was like, I, if I'm going to take on this project, I have to have it within my style of living. It has to be mobile, and I have to be able to pay for it myself because I don't want to get into debt. So I then started to get into the traveling community of Ireland. So, you know, like a boat up gypsy wagon. So I then said, I'm going to customize a boat up traveling wagon, do the same conceptual menu, the same concepts, but I then changed it that I was going to travel from farm to farm in this bow top wagon with a customized kitchen, collecting and foraging along the way. But when I got to the farm, would set up outside the farm, celebrate their harvest by cooking their crop outside their farm while having all the additives of all the foraging I had done from farm to farm. So then I got enrolled in this and I went down to Limerick to buy a horse of a man named Paddy Hanley. Now Paddy Hanley is the king of horses in Ireland. He has 57 horses, he's 75 years of age. He's driven horses for Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, a scene where Johnny Depp is standing on two carriages and he's flying down the road, standing on two separate carriages with horses. Yeah. So that scene, Mr. Paddy Hanley is on the left, driving the cart with Mr. Depp on, on <laughs> top, you know? So I gave him a ring, having no knowledge of who he was, you know? And he's told me he had two Roman horses, huge. Like their head was about the same size as my body. And he had two, two Roman horses. And he said, I have about 57 horses down here. And I have about 100 horses and carts. So he has 100 carts. And he was like, if you want to come down, I'll, I'll teach you the ropes. Babe. So I said, <laughs> I'll be down there. Like, you know? So he, I went down to him and lived with him for two months in his horse field. Now, I was driving four horse carriages with him with the top hat and all for uh, traveling weddings down in Irish town in Limerick. So we were doing a few different funerals, weddings, communions. We were driving them all. And in between this, we're like selling horses left, right and center. There's horses going one way, horses going another. So he's like a wheeling dealer of horses. Like, you know, I want to show you but this here. I, I want to, I want to show you this quickly. Cause I know we go off the topic of horses and um, my, yeah. my grandfather. So my father that I was telling you about Glenn, the bucking coat, uh, his father was one of the first Jarvies at Stevens Green. He was like literally oh. there was he he held the license like back then, which was huge. This is a great photo I have of him. Oh, sick, oh wow, sick. wow! You know, that's coming oh, up the cr- 
Oh wow. wow! I'm gonna. I'm. I'm not even gonna try guess. I'd say a solid forty, maybe close to forty-five years ago. Um, oh, he's coming up. He's coming up the Crumlin Road. Um, the whole road was flooded, and uh, he was coming up the road delivering coal. That's wow. that's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. You don't see but that I, anymore. You don't even hear tales like that anymore. Don't you know? That's that's the thing yeah. that makes it so interesting. Yeah. No, I, I just had to say that because I knew we'd get off the topic there. Um, but yeah, no, continue. Yeah, so, so then selling selling them, yeah. Yeah, so we were buying selling horses, horses going up, horses going down, going into wild stables like Paddy is a wild man. Like you'd be going into the stable with sixteen horses, half of them are kicking around, like kicking each other. You're going, Paddy, this is mad, like you know, and he's walking around as if everything is grand. Like so then I got confidence with horses, got confidence with anything. And you know, you start to get the energy that you transit to a horse and start to get you realize the horses have emotions and horses can tell your energy, you know? And when your energy is positive, you can flow with, even when a wildest horse won't kick you if he knows it's you that's there, you know? Oh. So we would make, he would be making paddies like a horse whisperer, like, you know, he'd be making all mad sounds and we'd be breaking in horses, like wild horses. We'd be breaking in in the field with tires strapped to their back, like, and they'd be kicking off, like, you know, I'd have the horses by the head, by the rope. Baddy be behind them, like you know, just <laughs> as it was done, like you know, breaking in. He had two, two fowls that he was training in. We had to separate fowls. We were bringing mares up the up the stallions, and there was a, a lot of horse uh, wheeling and dealing going on. But Paddy, legend, and from there, then I said, All right, I'm gonna have to save for this horse and wagon because the bill is looking a bit heavier than I was thinking, you know. So I went over to Norway to save for the horse and the wagon and uh, I was working in this small little farmhouse restaurant on a nature reserve on a small little island and a lot of the produce and uh, a lot of the stuff we were producing was lo locally foraged. So we'd spend a lot of time foraging for different events. We'd have some events like uh, conference events that we would cook for where we would spend like a day foraging. And then we would have different weddings because it was like a barn house in this beautiful garden. And it was all very nice, just me and two other chefs. So we were doing very private events in a very exclusive kind of place with very exclusive food. And during this time, I was uh, doing a lot of meditation in Hofs. Now, Hofs are sacred ceremonial sites of the pagan uh, pre-Christian faith in Norway. So Hofs... Even in Ireland, hoofs would have existed before they built churches on them. It's generally the places that they built churches, generally where stone circles were, but very stone, so powerful stone circles have now been replaced with churches. So it, when the Catholics came in, they took away the stone circles and built churches on these holy places. So I was doing a lot of meditation in one of these stone circles and lighting a lot of fire in the center of the stone circle in a highly vibrational forest. So I, when I mean highly vibrational, you had very powerful trees, as in very old, big trees of oaks, like a widespread of oaks, widespread of larch, and a widespread buzz of nature. So I was one day sitting there meditating into a fire where an ambition came to me, and a mission came to me through the fire, that I would have to carry this spirit of abundance from here to the center of Ireland to create a pulse of fertility for the natural environment around. Now, Ireland is geologically, geographically, or that way in the center of the world. So within the heart of the world, I would have to bring 
this essence of balance within an ecosystem to the center of the world to create a pulse that will be sent through the world to create fertile ground for breeding upon animals, plants, trees, and an acknowledgement to the human race that you are not alone. So with this ambition, I'm then thinking, I can't be bringing a fire from here to Ireland. Like, it's, you can't be doing that. Like, it's completely mad. Don't do it. Don't think of it. Forget it. Like, leave it out of your head. It's not, it's not an option. Just go back to your horse and wagon and customize the kitchen in it. And that's fine, man. Don't start thinking of carrying a fire to, from Norway to Ireland. But then, uh, Ran pulled up on a harbor. The boat we're on now. So the pirate ship pulled up. And I'm sitting there on a day off. And I had kind of forgotten about but not forgotten about it. It was still in my head, but I was trying to get it out of my head that you were going to take the fire from Norway, this special ceremonial place, to a very sacred ceremonial place in the center of Ireland. So I was trying to not get into Crazy Dara and try to say a little bit sane, but then Crazy Dara, the world just opened up to this mission and I was kind of flung into this mission rather than even wanting to do it. I wasn't my plan, like, you know. So... I then met a captain that was owning this ship and he said he was sailing 20, there was 50 miles south and he was looking for a guy because I went over to him to discuss, I loved his boat and I chatted with him about his boat, where he got it and everything. And he was saying he was going to sail 50 miles south and he needed a person to come with him. Now, while I was coming with him, I jumped on board. We went for a sail. Now, on our way, I didn't say nothing about the fire, but he was like, he's seen a huge fire and he was going on about this fire. So I was like, I didn't see any fire. Like the reason why he came into that harbor was that he's seen a huge fire in the harbor and he's seen people waving. That was the only reason he was going to a different harbor because it's about six miles off the track that he was on to get into the harbor. So he came in and then that's why I'm like, shit. Now you're gonna to have to take a fire from Norway to Ireland. Like, this is not good. Like, well, it was good in the sense I really wanted to do it, but I was like, fuck, that's a big heavy bag. Like, so I was like, um, I told him then about the fire, and he was like, okay, I have to show you something. And he brings me up to right up into the mountains where his house is, where there's another hook, a big, huge stone circle. So then he brings a fire out of the stone circle, and we're like having kind of a pagan ceremony with the fire and then he says if this is what you want to do you can have this boat do it so then I was like okay now this guy had like five gold teeth big hoop bearing like loads of tattoos like as piratey as you could get like you know and then from there I accepted the mission that I was going to travel from Norway to Ireland on a pirate ship with a sacred ancient fire and bring it to the center of Ireland. So for abundance and fertility in the natural world. So I then commenced on this journey on the 15th of November. And I knew this was getting into winter time, but in my head it was necessity that I had to sail during winter time to collect the heightened energy of power that would be needed for the fire to actually create a sense of fertility within the natural world. You had to actually go through the heightened levels of velocity of winter sea, Nordic sea time. So 
it kind of made sense, but didn't make sense. I'm like, man, this is insane, but it makes sense somehow in my head of like, fuck. So I got on this journey and started sailing around the coast of Norway and eventually met a crew. We got into a storm and then I lost the crew because after storms, crews don't stick around for much longer after a storm. Like, you know, you're bailing a boat out. There's like buckets going out. There's like sparks flying, electrics going wrong. And, you know, it was a few crazy yeah. storms. In, invert, inverted commas, uh, Matthew. Yeah, yeah. There's a few Matthews though along the way. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn's laugh. He just, just left a little. <laughs> so, so you lose some people, but then you gain other people then, you know? Opens the door yeah, for other people yeah. to jump on the ship, huh? And, you know, it's been ins and outs of different people and it's been amazing to have people on board and I, it's it's a very deep journey that a lot of people don't understand and they think they're getting on a boat where it's all landy dandy sailing. Well, really. you may as well tell them about the fella that's sort of leaving the boat now since you're talking about that really quick. Uh, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he, he, he was he, he came on the boat, he was great, you know. And he he was a great hand and a very brave man to come on board. But he, he we got into a storm, you know, and uh <laughs> The boat started sinking, fucking hell. But that wasn't sinking compared to sinking. Like, the lads think that was sinking. Now, I think sinking means, like, you know, you're up to your ankles of water, then you're sinking, like, you know. There was only water under the floorboards, like, you know what I mean? Only, only 60 litres, <laughs> only 60 litres, yeah. But I was up in the top of Scotland, made it over to Shetland, three and a half days, no, no sleep. Three and a half days over to Shetland, down through the Orkney Isles, solo for this whole time. And then I got to uh, a point called Cape Wrath in Scotland. Now, that's one of the most dangerous sailing quarters in Europe. So I got to Cape Wrath. Can I just Rath. stop you, Dara? Can I just ask yeah. you, just a matter of interest, how do you keep on top of navigation? So for navigation crossing, I, was, I met a man along the way. We see, I got smashed in a storm. There's a lot of different stories to the story. But I was kind of giving a bit of an overall. But to get more into it, navigation, I got into a storm with a Danish man, and the boat got smashed up, and we had to. We tried to go to Shetland, but the boat got completely smashed on the way. We took in a lot of water, almost sank, and made it back to Norway. And my boat was in bits, and the Danish guy had to go home. And this guy met me, and he was like, "I have a workshop over on a little island, off the west coast of Norway." So he brought me over to this little island and he was like a sailor, an electrician. He lived on boats for 20 years. He was like a mechanic also. So he took me under his wing and he was a very disciplined man. So he was very stern about everything. So we were up very early in the morning doing lots of things. By the time we got to the night, we had paper charts out. He was giving me tests the next day. Did I know everything that he was teaching me about navigation? So. I had paper charts, I had compasses, I had my phone, which had a navigational uh, app on it. So that was kind of the three main forms of navigation, was a 20 euro phone and paper chart and a compass, <laughs> you know? Wow, so that I, was, just, uh, I was just so interested, like I didn't want to stop the flow of that there, I was just massively interested in how you kept track of where you were and when certain events happened, how you knew where you are, because like I, I've been on boats a couple of times and 
um, you know, when you're out in kind of in, in the sea, um, mobile data isn't as good as you'd like it to be. Uh, there's no Wi-Fi and, you know, stuff like that. So I was just kind of interested to, to see how you'd uh, kept track of it. But then, I mean, to be honest, if you refer back to my question, how did anybody get on before all them things, you know? So I just kind of wanted to see where you using old techniques or why are you using modern techniques so you, you answered it we're actually confirming you're basically using both yeah yeah using a mix because if if all your electronics are gone then you're completely screwed if you don't know the knowledge of how to use a compass and a compass is very simple like if you have a paper chart you put a ruler on a compass it draws a straight line and gives you a degree <clears throat> and in your degree you know what degree to sail on so it's actually, navigation seems complicated, but if you actually read five minutes on it, it's not actually that complicated. Like going from Norway to Shetland, I was going 260 degrees the whole time. Now, within the middle of it, I, re, I looked at my phone, got my coordinates from my phone, then brought that coordinate to the paper chart and got a different degree I was like 286, then I then I was then traveling on 286 all the way to Shetland. So twice I had to reroute, well, once I had to reroute in the whole 265 kilometers from Norway to Shetland. So it's very simple, just looking at a, well, you have to look at, I was looking at a compass for 24 hours a day for three and a half days, just constantly staring at a compass to keep in balance. Because if you went off course for too long, you know, there was like, winter storms coming two days later so what what's so it like i know to go back to like glenn's kind of uh story like you're, you're sailing along and then you know the storm hits like that must i mean it's not a movie this is real like this is happening what do you do you just go into survival mode or what happens yeah see at the start i was kind of panicky and but once i kind of felt the flow of storms i would be quite comfortable with them now that if you you really have to you have to slow down to a storm instead of like speeding up the boat or if you slow down a storm by slowing down your boat and like taking down the sails putting the smallest possible sails on you can ha you can go through a storm with very little resistance against the boat and go through a storm with the boat getting any damage like the other day we were kind of flowing with the waves. The boat does need a bit of rebuilding. Like there's been a lot of work done over the whole journey. So I wasn't surprised that we got a few little leaks. But if you slow down, calm down, and really just let the storm kind of be a storm and kind of go with the storm. Become part of it. Come, really become part of it because if you go against it, you panic or you try to get to your destination too fast or you're not accepting and changing your destination. If you're in a storm, it's about keeping the boat afloat. It's not really about getting to your destination sometimes. Sometimes you have to forget about your destination and remember that the boat floating is the most important part of being in a storm. You can't say, oh, it's going to take me an extra day if I don't turn, if I don't start going on track now. You have to say, well, it's going to take you an extra like few years to get another boat if you don't ride the storm out. And like sometimes you might have to go ride out to sea to ride a storm out and get into calmer places where the storm might have time to settle down and 
so so like essentially you know the consequences of extending out your deadline of your your um location is far less than the consequences of survival the boat and you know getting to any location then i suppose yeah yeah so any location is then important but the time frame and you have to be comfortable to actually go out to sea and spend it could be two to four more days out at sea where if you're in a storm you really have to be gentle with it and glide with it and flow with it so that you and the storm work together because and the direction doesn't really matter once you're being safe the boat is being safe you're not taking in any any harsh hits on the boat you're going with the storm you're enjoying the storm and you're really in the essence of it and you're taking in all that beautiful energy but you're not against it you're not fighting it you're just flowing with it and where it's going to bring you is on a time frame of where you should be so it's actually delaying you for the purposes of a higher purpose, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you've, you've kind of made me think of something there. I don't know if you even meant it, but like the calm before the storm. It's so calm, it's so bliss. Boom, along comes the storm. But the calm after a storm. Like, yeah, so if you, yeah. You know, so if you just think of that, like this, the, the calm, this chaotic storm and calm. Well, let's go through that storm. And let's try remain calm. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm yeah, thinking of that over. now. Yeah. Yeah, it's very good yeah. uh, point there. It's the same way. Same, I think you could use that in life as well. You know, it's with yeah. mental health. Like, you know, um, with, with, with my chaos, you know, one day it's like even the best way to describe any mental illness is with me. One day you can feel like a superhero that can change the world. Then the next morning you wake up, you can't look in the mirror and you, you question yourself, what are you waiting, what are you waiting to die? And it's like part of everyday life is chaos. Do you know what I mean? It's it's um but being remaining calm, always having, you know, you're in a safe place and just thinking, thinking around it. So definitely, definitely, that's awesome. Yeah. I love how you brought that back to mental health. Like that's so relevant to what you're trying to promote now, and it's so relevant to the awareness you're trying to spread. Like it actually is an analogy that can link back into everything in life, and it's great that you brought that back into it because for people that don't know, I mean, you know, you've travelled the world, the both you've travelled the world, but like you could be sitting there and you could have the biggest smile on your face and you could be in a party and you could be socializing and mingling and meeting all these people. Everyone's like, you know what? That guy, Glenn, is some energy off him. Like, what a great guy. Boom, go home. You're in a room on your own and then boom, the head starts, you know, you're at war with yourself. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And, and what I find the most, without rambling on too much about it, it's, it's a, like if you see, if you're looking at a cancer patient or if you're looking at someone in a wheelchair, you almost feel sorry for them. They're actually sick. But, if somebody has mental illness, it's invisible. You know, you can't see it. Oh, he didn't know it. Brilliant, and you have people, you know, a lot of people, Blind Boy always talks about, and, and this is name, and he says something that really hits the nail on the head, you know? He talks about, ah, it's like, people think, ah, it's just another claim for fame, another claim for mental illness. Like, the reason why I came home was to seek professional help, because not only did I think about harming myself, but also harming others, and I was so scared, and I was, my, I lost my mind completely. I've ran away from my problems for seven years and the thing is you look at people say when you reach out to help I've reached out to everybody and my mother was probably the only one that saved my life because in September I was going to do it and the problem is with, with that what, the way I think is right let's talk about St. Xavier's Boxing for a minute and Darren Sunderland for instance Olympic bronze medalist my team member right 
Olympics bronze medalist, had all the money in the world, his career set, his future set. Not have, not have to worry about money ever again, providing for his family, going to be world champion, and then, boom, lost like that. People think like, ah, oh, like, there's bigger problems in the world, you know? But when, when, even when I was on that island, say, when you were at war with your own mind, right, do you think, you think Darren Sunderland, you think, like, Caroline Flack has already forgotten about the news, you know? You, I don't hear about her. You don't see adverts about mental illness forever. You don't hear it on the radio. It's kind of like, it's, it wasn't so long ago where the government, where everyone, people like me, was chained to fucking beds, we were thrown down holes and star because we were like, class as categorized as crazy and that's why the stigma around it is what baffles me most like even being honest finishing it on this here like i was i was going to change i'm trying to work on a book at the minute and i was going to give it in a different name because i was so scared of what people thought of all the most fucked up stuff that i've done yeah i was so scared to think what is people going to think of me how am i going to be able to sit down for dinner with somebody new if i release a book and if they got to find out and i had a meeting with publishers, I won't say the name, but met, met with them, and they says they got they asked me while I was sitting in the meeting, download this app. About um, it's an app that checks of any negativity on your social media accounts. Yeah, like it's it's basically it can tell you if you posted any disturbing comments, posts, and I was absolutely baffled about this. Right, two thousand eight hundred and eighty-eight negative comments, disturbing posts that I post that was looking for attention. So when, you, when you're looking for attention, they say, more likely you're in need of attention. So when, when that, was, that was going, I says, you know what? Fuck this. I says, I'm not going to give it a different name. I'm going to actually give it a my name because the problem is, it's okay to, to suffer. I've accepted. I'm going through psychotherapy at the minute, CBT, and going into more detail about it, it's like, the way I see it is, it's, like, it's, like, it's almost as a crime. You know, you're not allowed to suffer. People bring up the past, like, about all the stuff that I've done. But if you really, if you really think about it, and Stevie Wonder would be able to see from my posts and even from looking at my last post to anybody that knows me, deep down I was mentally ill. And the reason why, if I was looking for attention, I'd be still living in the Cook Islands. I came home because I was so scared of losing my mind again. And I got a message there, right, from Brazil. I've never met this girl. And I've got this message from Brazil, yeah? Never met her. I was never in Brazil. And she says to me, Glenn, well, I'm enjoying your journey so much. She says, it's really important what you're doing for me at the minute, speaking up about mental health. She says, because I suffer with bipolar and I hate the way people see me. And the thing is, like, the, the most amazing people in the world had learning difficulties. You know, George Bernard Shaw, like Einstein, Kanye West. A lot of people, like, you look at finishing it on this. Uh, it, this is a good example of what I like to use. I was um, sitting in a room and I asked uh, one of my brother's friends, I says, what do you think of... Uh, Kanye West, yeah? And, and he says, look, look what everybody else says. He's an arrogant, obnoxious scumbag, right? And I was like, hold on a minute. Kanye West has bipolar. He's mentally ill. If you look in Kanye West's eyes, and if you've seen the David Letterman show, what he talked about in the documentary, you can see Kanye West is lost. There's a reason behind Kanye West. Kanye West is human, and I'm human. And these people are human, but you pay, you have to pay 600 euro, right, to get to seek professional help, to go fucking private, or you have to wait a year and a half, a year and a fucking half, right, to to go wait on your doctor to seek up, because it's this kind of, it's, it's invisible, there's nothing fucking wrong with you, do you know what I mean? So if you want to die, there's eight-year-old kids out there, I'm getting phone calls and messages off people, can you help uh, my son with ADHD? I'm not qualified, like, counsellor, so I, I can't, I can only give my information, I've defeated it, but it's, it's just to me, that's, that's bonkers, that 
like people think, ah, there's nothing wrong with you. And even I love my mum, for instance, and I love her more than that in the world. But even to this day, she would think you're dwelling on the past too much. It's not that I'm dwelling on the past. I'm putting my life experience back into somebody that has suffering with the same mental illness disorder. That if you get professional help, okay, you can eliminate all the negativity, all the disturbing thoughts around it. You get you learn like CBT, what Blind Boy talks about. You get the tools to eliminate the negativity, and then with all your extra energy, you can move forward to do what you love and put that in. And that's that's uh, that's what all that's my message. What I'm trying to do. I love that. That's really brave as well. And it's really brave to put yourself in a situation where you've got really no fear of putting your name to the book now. Whereas they were taught at the beginning where like I won't do this, will I do that? I work in a hospital at the moment. Um, I have for about six years now. On my first job, um, I was uh, answering calls like in, in a medical records file room where there was like 30,000 charts. And, you know, it was very basic. And I was kind of like just, you know, doing work experience as such. And then this this manager at the time uh, had approached me and said, look, there's a woman on maternity leave. She ain't coming back for a while. Do you want to step into our post? I was like, yeah, 100%. I didn't even care what the job was. I was like, this is great. I'm only 17. Yeah. I'm getting a job, state job, blah, blah, blah. So I get put into uh, the psychiatric unit, which is called Hospital 6 in, in James' yeah. hospital. So, you know, a few people are like to me, wow, you know, you're only 17, you're going in there, like, Jesus, yeah. you know, nobody's built for that, da-da-da. A lot of people that are in there are mentally strong and thick-skinned and they've been to college and, you know, they were like, you know, best of luck. And I'm like, be grand. Like, and I actually look back at it and I say to myself, it was fine. It was one of the best experiences in my life working and, and being around those people a lot. The whole point I brought this up was because it's a story I tell some people in the hospital, uh, you know, and since I've moved on from that job, obviously I've moved on nearly four and a half years ago. Um, confidentiality and privacy is, is everything. So I never yeah. name people and I never go into details and I never once told anybody outside of the hospital if I'd seen somebody in there that they might have known, yeah. I'd known, or it was their family member. But I do share the story and this person does remain uh, nameless. There was yeah. this girl, right? She came in one day, and I used to sit on the clinics for for a professor. Uh, he's uh, involved with Trinity College, and she came in one day with with her mum, and we were sitting in a clinic called Suite Five. So there was Suite One to Six. So we were Suite Five, and down the corridor was Suite Six. And she walked in. She'd got this blonde hair. She was around the same age as me. She was her mum, stunning, absolutely one of these just naturally really beautiful girls. So I immediately say as a young lad uh, stupidly sorry I think you're in the wrong place and she says um, oh oh, sorry we're looking for sweet five and I say oh yeah okay um, what's your name so I say okay yeah. take a seat T take a seat like you know sorry so our mom's kind of looking at me like you know so I'm like I'm sorry thought you were looking for some other clinic so takes a seat out comes prof takes her in on her own she comes back out the eyes are all wet she's got them in telling her story to him the mother goes in on the on her own. Mother comes out, eyes are all wet. And then the two of them go in together. So then he says to me, bring her back next week. So next week she comes back, the week after, the week after. Now if you, we just say for, for example, if Glenn, if you were going in and you were seeing every six weeks or every six months, that's a good thing. The fact that you don't need yeah. to be coming in that often is a really good thing. But if you need to be yeah. seeing every week, that's not a good thing. And that's the thing that shows yeah. how severe this is. So I'd be typing up her letters, so I'd have the headphones on, I'd be back in the office, and I'd be listening to the dictation that the consultant is speaking in. 
and I'm typing them up, so I'm getting to hear the whole story. Obviously, while trying to just bottle this up and not have to ever tell anybody, uh, this is yeah. somebody's life, this is somebody's experience, and it deserves to never be shared with anybody. So kind of a bit upset by it, you know, and it was the first one that really hit me because although I'd seen hundreds of patients, I'd never seen somebody so young and I'd never seen somebody uh, in the same bracket as me that was going through a mental illness. So long story short, um, that one week became uh, an inpatient. She was on the ward for about four or five weeks and she couldn't be basically uh, left at home. Um, She was a threat to herself and others. So I walk onto the ward one day uh, to get a couple of a couple of bits, and I see her, nearly unrecognisable. That blonde hair had kind of went to nearly like this grey kind of washed colour. Her face yep. was pale. She didn't look like oh. she did when she first presented. So immediately in my head, I'm saying, "This is disgraceful." That girl came in fine, and look at her now. This is wrong. She's pumped up on yep. meds. She's stuck in here with all these other people. She doesn't deserve to be here. Da 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 da. So. We have a thing called the DNA. So DNA is a did not attend. So Glenn Murray's due in next week and he doesn't show up. I'll write on a piece of paper, DNA. Consultant comes out, sees, all right, he might have been down in his mother's house. He might have had a football match and he might have missed the appointment. That's fine, we'll book him in again. Make sure he's got his his prescription sent out to him in the post. So she comes up as a DNA. Now in my time, there was a couple of DNAs and any DNAs weren't because they were down visiting their mother or off doing their bits. It was because most likely they took their own life. And I would have seen a lot of suicides. Um, I would have, you know, people that would have come into the clinics and then never come in again. So yep. she was a DNA. So I got a lump in my throat and I thought, oh my God, she's she's actually, she's had to been off the ward. She's now coming back to be seen in the clinics. You know, that's a good thing. She's taken yeah, from yeah. the ward. She didn't show up. So prof comes out and I say, prof, she, she, she's a DNA. Like, and he says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you. I've discharged her. Oh, and I fuck. Say, and I go, oh, that's fine. He goes, no, I've got the dictation tapes there. I give them to you. No, no, she, she's fine now. That's good. That's good. Thanks so much. So I'm like, wow, right, fine. Six, I'm going to say six months later, myself and my girlfriend are out, all right? And we're going for a meal. And we go into the restaurant. And we get asked, a table for two? And it's her. Oh, fucking man. man. Getting goosebumps listening to this. Fuck's man, sake. she's standing in front of me. The hair is back, the face. Beautiful, beautiful girl standing in front of me again. She looks so, so much better. So much better in her face. Like, just the eyes, is glowing, everything. And I say, how are you? And she goes, oh, how are you? I didn't recognise you, da, da, da. So my missus is looking going, who the fuck is this? Do you know what I mean? Like, who's this good-looking girl? How do you know her, da, da, da. Yeah, yeah. So, so we sit down at the table and then thinking I work in a hospital, confidentiality. So I turn around to my girlfriend and I say to her, oh, I went to school with her. Boom, that's that, put to bed, done. I go back into work, say it was a Friday evening, I go back into work on the Monday morning. I immediately go up to Prof. Prof, 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 I seen her. Oh, great, 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 how is she? I said, she's great. I said, she's working up here. He goes, oh, brilliant, her mother was in contact. I'm great, really glad mm-hmm. to hear that. I said, Prof, you don't want me ask me. I said, like she came in fine and then she went up to the ward and she looked like this zombie almost like and didn't yeah, look herself. Yeah. I said, and now I'm at the scene and she looks even better now. He goes, Ross, mental illness isn't always present on the outside. He goes, when you seen her that first time she came in and she looked fine, she was at her worst. He goes, yeah, trying, so I, trying, he yeah. goes, I brought the bad out in her. She spoke about it. She felt the emotion. She released the emotion. She was experiencing it. And then you started to see the bad. I got that yeah. out of her. 
and he goes, and now that's what you see there now is the real whore. So basically, we're, we could all be walking around and look fine. It's it's not that's it's the same and and because just go to show the story there that's an inspirational story. I'd love to meet her. And the thing is, it's like, what what like being honest, the end of this story. Um, for thirty two years of my life, I walked around with this imaginary demon. You could almost say right without going too cliche on it. And even it's it goes beyond just just the things of of with the mind. I got a phone call which inspired me to do a podcast next week about. A fella that was so upset, he's so much energy, that's so upset over the problem that he has with drink, with addiction, downgrading women, sleeping with married women and stuff like that. And the problem is, again, what, 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 like, I have a girlfriend now, right? And I, I met her. I met her. I met her when uh, the day that my nana died, right? It was the most, it's the most magical story that I've ever met. And basically, what happened was, I was so scared all my life to speak, to tell that girl about who I used to be. I have been with prostitutes. I have downgraded women. I was a low-life scumbag under the influence. And when I went to seek professional help to, to talk about it, he says, Glenn, it is very important, like what you're saying, to speak up, to release it, let it go, and the real you will start shining. And he says something to me that has changed my life the last two weeks. He says, Glenn, like, you need to listen to me carefully, he says. The problem was never you. The problem was never ADHD. The problem was drugs and drink on top of that, alcohol on top of that. Masking. Was making you become, yeah, it was coming that person. And they'd say, like, I'd have friends, and I love my friends. They'd warm me up, but they'd say, like, does your girlfriend know, even being fully crazy, because I'm going Jim Curry on this shit. I'm going fully balls deep in this shit. They would say, does she know you're used to pissing your mouth? Does she know you're shit in the bed in Tunisia? And I used to have anxiety, not being able to sleep for weeks thinking, what if a girl knows that about me? And, you know, did you cheat or this and that? So I met this girl and I says, to, I says you know what, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm going to say I used to be this person, and, but I'm not that now. It doesn't matter if I used to fucking piss in my mouth or even going vulgar, even going the truth. It doesn't matter if I've done all this fucked up shit, as long as I don't do it now. And I'm so, people says, ah, you should have gotten assessed seven years ago before you left. But if that had have happened, I would have never have this life experience to like, I feel like people like speaking of, you can, you go, you mean to go, you're living on the most secluded in the world and you lose your mind, you want to die. Do you know what I mean? And it's, it's, um, so that's what, what, when my, I'm passionate about, like, I don't want to cook. I don't give a fuck about chopping tomatoes and this and that. I do it here with Dara for the laugh and to eat for myself. But if you ask me to, to write a book or write a story on, you know, how you survived, how you didn't die or, about Mark, for instance, my best friend that, that has passed away from mental illness. If you ask me to do that, I'd stay away for two weeks and talk about it because that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I'm doing, doing what I love. And I just think it's, it's, it's I, when I came back, I came back in January and I was looking into, I always seen posts about the mental health system and it's a joke. But you know, you don't really, unless you educate yourself, you can't really, you know, agree with it. So I was like looking into it. And then I started like reading books and I was like, Wait a minute, in the 1940s, people like me was chained to beds and like, you know, it wasn't so long ago that people was born on the cross on crosses and chained the bed, fed and, and lost the feeling in their limbs. And then that stigma from that years ago to, to now, people is afraid to speak up, you know, a girl messaged me before, or don't tell anyone I, I have bipolar, you know. 
So if she's walking around with this weight on her shoulders, she's afraid to be the real her, then you will never be, if you're never able to love yourself, how will you be able to do anything with your life? Because if you're hating or if you're not accepting yourself on the inside, you certainly won't be on the outside. And to me, that's what I find, turning my life experience into doing what I love. And like the message from Brazil, is just, it's just that they blow me away. A girl from Brazil that never met me has just reached out to me and Dara says, thank you so much for, for sharing your stuff. It's helping with my bipolar. And I just, I just says for it, it says, you look at Kanye West. Kanye West has bipolar. He doesn't care what people think. It's people will, will, you know, they bring up the shit all they want. So that's, that's really it, to be honest. I, I actually had somebody on the podcast before, like, and just what you said there here home so much. I'm going to just play it here. Um, yeah. Just going to play exactly what I said to him. Podcast episodes, you said, you know, how can you love someone else or anyone else mm. if you can't love yourself? Yeah. So that was kind of, did you hear that there? Yeah, yeah. How can you love anyone else if you can't love yourself? Yeah. You know, he, he'd said that, like, it wasn't my quote. I just kind of referenced him. But, like, you and him have said something very similar and share, obviously, very similar um, beliefs. And, and what you're doing, Glenn, like, it needs to be recognised. Like, people can't... And I have to say this to you. I'm going to just say it to you because I feel it from the bottom of my heart. I didn't get you on because you're on a pirate ship and it's cool. Like, do you know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't do that. Like, I didn't ask oh, you on I know because... That. I know that. You know, you need to know that. I didn't get you on because of that. But can I say something? The pirate yeah. ship and the fact you're on a pirate ship is the reason I found you. Yeah, it's it's mad. And and you know what else is funny? I find that I find that hilarious. I've been following my heart right since day one. Like if I've no money, I don't know how I'm going to get to live inside a castle in Sweden. I'd get I I rocked up, and next of all, a limousine is picking me up, bringing me inside a 13th century castle wall. And I'm constantly following my heart, regardless of money. So I went for an interview. Yeah. And this is mad how we meet and how I'm on a pirate ship. I went for an interview in London in a really top of the range kitchen. One of Jamie Oliver trained, uh, trained one of the chefs. He's really well known. And um, I went for an interview and I got the job. You know, the guy was like, Jesus, you've cooked in pretty decent kitchens. You've lived all over the world. Uh, you know, you can, you can be junior, like you can come to, to work for me. And he says, what do you want? What do you want out of life when you're 40? Which is like seven years from now. And I, I says, I lie it in the interview. I says, I want to be, work for the best chefs in the world, have a good life, have, have all, like, money to look after me family and just teach others how to cook, blah, blah, blah. And I went outside that interview and I was screaming and crying. I was bawling. I was depressed. I wanted to die. I was, I needed professional help. I was in London and I needed to come back. And I read The Alchemist and The Alchemist says, The Alchemist book, I love Macklemore, the rapper Macklemore, because he, he turns his alcohol, his addiction when he had an overdose, he turned it into positivity, speaking up, and the amount of people, if you listen to his words, he's like, the way he speaks, he speaks with so he's much actually, soul. He's actually a poet. Yeah, yeah, and he, he draws the, the readers in, and that's why I listen to him. Every song is about life experience, and believe it or not, the only one time I was sober in most of my travels, I seen Macklemore, when I went to a concert in Sydney, Australia. And it's the only concert I remember. And it's weird. So Macklemore was like speaking to me. And then in one of his songs, he says, he'd highly recommend Read the Alchemist. And I read it. And then I was like, wait a minute. I says, no, no matter what if I have learning difficulties, no matter what, if I'm following my heart, like if people don't think that you can become a writer, if people don't think you can promote mental health, whatever people think, they, they will always say you can't do it, yeah? And whatever. 
comes at me like you know I move in back with my mum I'm at the middle living in the most one of the most secure lines in the world I lived in castles in Sweden and then I'm back because I can't afford rent because if I have to go back to Dublin again the homeless system is a joke the, the, the rent crisis I would have to go back working in the kitchen and then I wouldn't be I wouldn't be happy I'd be depressed because it's not doing what I love but if I go back to living with my mum's look I'm not even allowed to open the fridge my mum has panic attacks I break dishwashers and I'm the, the worst person in Europe to live with. I feel sorry for them. And, you know, my brothers do be having nightmares. They do be screaming on the phone at three in the morning, excite, excited, well, like when Dara called me, waking up the whole house. But <laughs> if, I, if I give up now, after coming this far, on, the, on my dreams of going to Trinity, it's only five years. It doesn't matter. Like, I was watching a Netflix TV show, um, the, the Hoist it's called, and the fella in it, you've probably seen it, one of the fellas in it speaks... This, this has changed my life, one of the quotes in it. He basically says, he says uh, they're doing a bank robbery. And in the bank robbery, the, one of the guys, the, the mastermind behind the bank robbery, he says that he, he has three years to live. So one of the other, the leaders, if they says, listen, I don't want you to do this bank robbery because if you do this hoist, you're going to, um, you're going to spend the last uh, three years of your life in prison. And I don't want that to happen. We can do it. And, you know, we'll sort you out the money. And he basically speaks with so much heart. Now it's acting, but the way it was writ has hit me, hit me home. And he says, he says, if Picasso, Van Gogh, anybody that was three years left to live, what would they do? They would do what they're only passionate about. They do, they do what they love. James Joyce would write, Picasso would paint. That bank robber went out and done what he loved because he was so passionate about. And that, it doesn't matter if, if whether I make it or not. The way you see it, I don't care about money now. I don't care about, like, you know, fame or, or Instagram or anything. All I care about now is I'm doing what I love. I'm not, I was saying this to Dara last night. That's why we've done a podcast about freedom. I was saying this to Dara. It doesn't matter. We're not living for anybody but ourselves. We're doing what we love. And some people relate to it and some people don't. But the ones that don't, it's like, it's fine. You know, we can't relate to them. So. That's Dara is actually up on. Uh, he's at the boat. Is at the towing off there, uh, off the dock, and we're kind of gone a bit. That we need to come out there trying to fix the boat. So that's why he has left. But um, basically, I don't know if he's going to be able to come back in. Dara, he's going to come back in. But his story that um, he'll tell you now, finishing off the story about what he's doing. But when he the the story again, we're going to tell you, uh, Dara, you'll have to talk about when. Tell the story. The people need to hear the funny side of the true story about one of the most inspirational stories to me. To me was, um, I'll let you tell it when you sank in Scotland um, about the house. Yeah, so I was. Um, I went down to Orkney. Now Orkney Isles is a complicated place, full of tides, currents. You have a whole Atlantic coming in, and the Atlantic is meeting the North Sea, and it's a very messy place. So getting around Cape Wrath, Cape Wrath is the northernmost peak of Scotland where a North Sea and a Minch comes up and then you have an, a North Sea meeting in Atlantic. Now you have a North Sea meeting in Atlantic that's channeled through a Minch. So you have a channeled sea, you have an Atlantic that gets channeled in one part so it becomes very high and then you have a North Sea coming from the north. These two meet each other at the point of Cape Wrath, hence the name Cape Wrath. So I was like, you know, everyone was telling me don't go around Cape Rat, like it's Cape Rat, it's Cape Rat. So they shouldn't, I went have, they shouldn't have told you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> you know, and on on the day, it, it was good weather, but it was calm before the storm, and I had an engine at this time, and I was like, right, I'm just going to engine it straight around Cape Wrath, calm before the storm, I'll get around before the storm. I had a day's grace. Well, like, I had about 40 hours grace before it was going to kick off, you know, and I'm steaming along, sailing in a full moon. Now, sailing in a full moon is a bit dangerous, like, you know, because sailing in a full moon, you have huge tides, huge currents. So I got blasted over to Cape Rats with a full moon behind me. Now, you always want to sail with a moon behind you because a moon is an anti-magnet water. So if the moon is behind you, it pushes water. So if you have the moon behind you, you'll fly. So I flew straight to Cape Rat. Then from the wind that was coming in, I got hit with a flood tide. Well, I went around Cape Rat and I was two kilometers around Cape Rat and I was like, what are they all talking about this Cape Rat thing? This is grand. Like, I think they're all exaggerating things here. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then about 10 minutes later, boom, we were in this shit. Like, like, you know, two story houses just erupted as in waves. You know, you were going over mountains, going up mountains that have, in one wave, you could have four or five waves in one wave. So you have one wave that has like four or five different waves in the actual wave. But that's how big it is, you know? So we get up, I go around, and I'm not moving at all. I'm actually going backwards. And I'm looking at the lighthouse at Cape Wrath, and I'm just going back from it. Because as soon as I went out, I hit with a flood tide and I'm going back out into messy stuff. So I battled that for four or five hours. Unfortunately, I should have cut it earlier than I did because I had 10 miles left of a 60 mile journey. So I had 10 miles left. So I was like, you can make it that 10 miles to get it to a safe harbor for the storm tomorrow. Because any other option, you're not going to be in a safe harbor. Anyway, I had to up the sails because my diesel was going low up the sails and had to sail around to a lock called Lock Arable. Class, the messiest place to be sailing in Europe in a lock in wintertime. Madness. <laughs> so I went around up into Lock Arable, had the wind to get up in there, like, you know, and I knew my diesel was low, but I ended up, there was an anchorage down the back. I sailed right up, dropped the anchor, everything was fine. I was having food and everything in the cabin being ringing my parents, telling them, you know, I had arrived to the Highlands. And then the peak, the start of Storm Brendan came. Now, when I was going around to Cape, or to Loch Erebo, all along the cliffs, I could see big faces of the elders, you know, the old elders looking at me. In the, in the shapes of the cliff, I could just see old faces <laughs> of women and men with patterns going all around them. And I'm looking at this going, this is going to be mad. I know this is going to be mad. There's something more to this. And I have a fire blazing in the boat the whole time. Like the whole time I have a wood-fired stove. That <laughs> the fire, even across the North Sea, there's a fire blazing in my boat the whole time, you know. <laughs> so I get up into Cape Rat, drop the anchor. Storm Brendan comes. Boom. I have never felt anything like a G-force <laughs> like this. There was no control in the boat. There was no steer in the boat. The boat just went up. I, the boat was almost flying, like, you know. There was no sails or anything up. There was no option of getting sails up. The front of the boat, anchors and everything ripped straight from where to where. There was no catching another anchor. I let off the anchor line as long as they could. And anchors ripped from the boat. Lucky they didn't pull the whole boat apart, like, you know. 
and I'm getting blown apart. And I know I battled it for four or five hours of this incredible that just keeping the boat straight was hard with the, the G force of the wind because any other direction of wind that would have been grand, but because it was southerly wind, it created a, a vortex through the mountains that channeled the wind. So say if you had 80 kilometer winds, that was going up to like 120 kilometer winds through the vortex of the mountains. And I could see the elders all standing like, a, as if I was in the center of a Coliseum, looking at me, being like, is he ready? Let's test them, you know? <laughs> is, is he ready to take such an ancient spirit from one place to another, you know? And I ended up having to drive the boat straight into a beach, drive straight into a beach, banked it on a beach. Now, the whole boat sank when I drove it into the beach, boards popped and every, every, everything I owned was just floating. I had to get, I, I was, you know, up to my neck in water trying to get the essentials out of the boat before it went down completely, like, you know. And I went to shore with a rope for the boat because I didn't want the boat to float away. So I went to shore with a rope to anchor the boat down. So tied a rope in, had to leave the boat where it was, get a log, put it down, tied the rope in as much as it was. Swim, was it? Swim, yeah. Well, you, you could, you could kind of, well, I swim for the first five meter, but I wasn't far off the bank because I drove into the beach, you know, and it was about six o'clock in the morning. So I just stayed. I didn't want, there was a little cottage right beside me and I didn't want to go over. There was lights on, but I didn't want to go over because I didn't want to frighten people because I was in the middle of nowhere. Like there was no other lights apart from this little cottage. Now, when I got to the cottage, the next morning when the lights came up, I went over and knocked on the door. I'm looking in the window and it's, it's fair fancy, you know. There's all lovely tweed uh, couches, all very authentic Scottish stuff. So I was like, this is like a very high-end like cottage for a cottage. So I was thinking it must be some sort of either a really rich person's house that they don't visit that often or it's like a holiday home thing. So I'm knocking on the windows, there's no one there. And I was like, fuck it, I'll try to ch chance the front door and see if it's open, like, you know? And I, I opened the front door and it's open. So I'm like, all right, it's meant to be. Happy days. I'm soaking, took off my clothes, went in. I was like, uh, I'm in the middle of nowhere. They're not going to be here for another day. If I just have a shower, a bit of sleep, I could be back out, you back on the boat. You know, I was thinking maybe I could get the boat fixed and get back out. Like, So I went in, had a shower. Uh, stuck on the kettle, had a few biscuits that were lying around. You know, I was making myself at home a little bit, like, you know. I was like, I, I, think you I think you deserved it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, I've been through a lot today, like, you know. So I'm asleep on the couch, and all I hear is, Are you in the house? And I'm like, Oh shit, like, who is this? Like, Get out of the house. I'm like, What's going on here? <laughs> and then I look outside and the police there's a policeman outside like you know he's like get out of the house now <laughs> oh, shit. you're like here hang, hang on fucking I'm just in the middle of Duncan <laughs> <laughs> so halfway through a biscuit they were thinking like you know it could have been like a drug dealer or someone on the run and uh I just threw my jacket on because all of my other clothes were soaking wet, so I wasn't going to put them on. But the only thing I had was a jacket. Like, you know, this actually, this tweed jacket here, like, you know, <laughs> and it doesn't have any buttons yet. Like, you know, they broke. 
But um, you were naked underneath. Yeah? yeah, I was naked underneath. He's like, put your hands out, and I was like, are you sure? <laughs> He's like, put your hands out. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And I'm there, you know, fully naked. <laughs> Not a sock to me name. And uh, the policeman then kind of looks at me and goes, you know, he could kind of feel by my energy, but um, he was then like, where is there anyone else here? You know, very suspicious. And uh, it then came to a point where he realized. I did just came in on the boat and I had this story that I was telling them. And then the local people of Scotland just came out of the hills, like all these big, big fishermen, like hardy men, like some of the hardiest men you'll ever meet. Like, you know, you could tell just by the look of them, you know, they were through some harsh winters and some harsh times. And they came down and the whole community came down and they were just like, amazed by the journey that I've done and where I came and how I crashed. So they were very helpful bringing down food and everything. And wow. from the vision, from the vision that I had of creating an abundant awareness of wildlife and wild nature from lighting the fire and bringing the fire to this place, I landed on a man's land that was a multi-billionaire that had bought up most of the Scottish Highlands to have a 200 year plan of rewilding the land. So I was like, holy shit, this has to be meant to be. From the vision I had to what I had manifested in landing in this place that the man had a 200 year plan of taking all the grazing cattle away, letting the trees come back up, letting the birds and the bees grow off the trees and let the natural ecosystem balance out rather than grazing cattle eating everything that's alive. So where I was, I already felt I was in a very special place, but the fire did go out, like the boat went down, the fire went out, my spirits were very low, the mission was a fail, the boat was sinking, and I was like, right, everything has ended, like this plan didn't go to plan at all, like this is the shit, but with the place I landed in, I still had a bit of spirit in me because of the ambition of the person who owned the land, has a very similar vision that I had. So the locals came down, and the locals were amazing now. They were picking periwinkles on the seashore. Now, periwinkles are as little sea snails. And at the time, they were given during winter 350 a kilo, 250, 350 a kilo for large, 250 for medium, and one pound for small. So I had loads of time in my hand while I was fixing the boat. So I was making a few pounds, filling up sacks and sacks and sacks of periwinkles and handing them oh, off man, to the boys. They are the best thing ever. Yeah. Lovely, they are like, so man. nice, man. They are like they are a lot of Dublin kids' childhood in, in one word, you know, like just picking winkles. Like literally, ha nearly everybody can kind of relate to that. Like going out with a bag, like and just picking bags and bags of winkles, and then going here, look, Darren, I got this amount, and oh, Glenn, I got this amount, and look, I got this amount. Like it was a competition yeah. who could pick the most winkles. And I think, uh, and that's why I think it's it's that's how, I think his story is so interesting because. With his vision, the way I the way I see it is like you were saying, we would have experienced, you know, the likes of the Winkles, the likes of the stew, the Irish stew that our grandmother made. And kind of you go into houses now, that's dying out. Like my family, you know, they would eat a lot of takeaways and like my mum wouldn't eat my food, you know, even though she would rather order prawn linguini from a shitty little takeaway place than for me to cook it. She doesn't like the fancy stuff. And I think like the kids these days, they have a so they have a hand at them, you know. KFC or other stuff where the Irish culture food 
is dying. You don't see. Then if you've been following our journey, if you looked at what, that everything that we've been cooking was caught from nature or from like, you know, food from local supermarkets, like the cheese that they were making and stuff like that. And that's what Dara will talk more. That's why he is actually... You know what? To bring. That is unbelievable. My... Growing up, right, this is like, what you just said is so relatable. When I was growing up, right, I had two favourite dinners. And they were both made by two different grandparents. Yeah. Right, my, gra- my grandmother made the most amazing, my mum's mother made the most amazing cuddle. And my dad's mother, who was married to the man on the horse, he, um, she would have made bacon, cabbage, potatoes and ribs or bacon. Ribs and and well, you know we'll have that. to get we'll have to get him to we'll have to we'll have to whip up that to where because I, I was only talking about that we haven't had it in ages and it's Bacon so hearty oh, so hearty man but that's what I'm trying to grown up right my nanny would say to me like she'd ring me on the phone right and she'd say are you coming up to me this weekend son and I'd be like eight nine and I'd be like yeah I'll be up yeah she's like I'll make you your cabbage potatoes and ribs or whatever you know and then the other nanny'd say are you coming down to me after school I'd say yeah I'll make the cuddle right they were my favorite dinners you ask younger kids now maybe 8, 9, 10 you know what's your favourite dinner? Um, spice bag spice bag um, a pizza uh, 4 and 1 I mean like and that's just the times change and then whatever it is what it is but when I was growing up my nanny always tells a funny story that like she used to bring me over to the Crumlin Shop Centre in the pram and like my other cousins would be there with like horse sisters which would be their grandparents and they would um, have like packs of snacks and lollies and chocolate right and I'd have a bowl with tuna, mayonnaise, sweet corn and lettuce and red onion mixed up in the bowl. And I'd be eating it, right? And all them would be like, what, what are you eating that for? Like, but that's just the way I was reared up, you know? And, and it's, it's yeah, really, yeah, definitely. it's down to how you're brought up. And I think there's not enough Dara's um, doing what he's doing. Um, like, not even promoting, because you shouldn't be promoting. Like, it should be just built into our genes. It should be part of our yeah, heritage yeah. to want to eat that food. Like, you always see, like, um, a funny story. Like, yesterday, the CEO of the hospital left. So he retired. And they got this big cake from Super Value. And we all got a slice of it um, in, in our office. like, And um, it was like the cream on it was like that. It was like icing. It was like, it was like that thick icing, like real sugary and thick. Um, and a woman that, like, is from Kerry originally, like, who is he, his PA, she's, like, his assistant, she came in and everyone's raving about the cake. Oh, it's amazing. So nice, so nice. And she came in and she was like one of the only people to say, no, didn't like it. And I said to her like, you know, Margaret, why, why didn't you like it? She goes, oh, you can't be fresh cream. You know, like things like that, you know, like that's what she grew up eating. Like, you know, proper dairy products, proper meat, proper. Whereas. Well, it's, it's, it's mad that we're even talking about this because I, I'm, I'm a bit uneducated in that sector and, Dara says something the other day which which baffled me. Like, even you know the way we're talking now, we shouldn't have to be promoting mental health awareness. You shouldn't have to wait a year and a half to, to fucking get assessed. And then again, we're talking about the homelessness. And Dara was saying, Dara was saying that um, basically uh, when he was when he goes around places, right, he checks the back of all the back of other corporation buildings, and there's so much stuff thrown out and what they do in Norway is a, a totally different scheme. So there's homelessness, there's homelessness. There's so many people starving on the streets, yeah? And all these big corporations and all these big supermarkets would rather throw out 
the bread. It's not gone off. Like you, you know more about it. Like yeah, like what they do in Norway. What, what, what's happening is we're, we're letting vampires basically into the into the country. Like big corporations, big men that are importing, they're selling cheap food, mass production, and they're selling it cheap, and they're sucking our culture dry. Now, an example is I was down in a town called Dune in Limerick. Now, this town used to have five different shops. Those five different shops employed up to 50 to 75 people locally. Why the produce, them five job, five shops were producing. Now, a big spar came into that town, a big one. That spar landed in that town. Now, what the spar done was imported cheap, sprayed chemical food, imported it, sold it for cheap, is now selling our country's people cheap, sprayed, toxic food, and unemploying all the local shops, sucking the local culture, the local traditions, the local knowledge of the land dry to feed our people unnutritious, chemical, canceristic food. Now, for me to say that makes sense in any sort of way and to allow these entities to come into our country, suck us dry, make the one man make a lot of profit by importing, having the contacts, he's just having contacts and he's just importing, importing, having contacts all the local knowledge, all the local inheritance, the local culture, it's all being sucked by one, a few big men who are smart enough to be smarter than the local people. Now the local farmers are going out of business. Local production has stopped. The local buzz about the town has stopped. The town has become alien to and what it used to be. And you were mentioning about as well, the about the community waste. even. And the waste. If I, I go to these local, I call them vampires to a culture because they are vampires to a culture. You talk about Aldi or anything, they just suck a culture dry. They import everything. They don't care about local tradition. They don't care about local food. They care about profit. And that's all they care about. I was, ju- I was actually just to say quickly, so you've got the party that's in government. So people before profit, you could flip that and say profit before people. That these people are like, when they see Dara and Glenn and Ross walking into the shop, we have this massive, massive euro sign on our face. We are money. Yeah. And that's all we are. We are not people. We don't care about the skills, the traditions, the techniques. There's a whole rhythmistic talent to producing local quantities. So from my traveling, I've done a lot of dumpster diving in the back of uh, these high industrial shopping centers, say. And in the back of them, they're wasting more produce than the, the whole energy, the whole resources, fuel consumption, packaging, plastics, and everything that goes into these places. And I've been to the back of them, and I've got weeks and weeks and weeks of food on board from the waste that's going out in these. I've taken out boxes of food. like I've done three or four runs with a backpack, hopping over fences, going into the back of the bins. And I, I could have no problem traveling this boat if they, those entities continue, I could have no problem living off their waste. Because the what their waste... Down, it's, it's in, in Norway, they have a good system, but it's not come really getting down to the, the actual problem that these entities have to be eliminated. But in Norway, they do have a better system 
that what happens is a guy goes around in a freezer van. Now, if you're Tesco, your Aldi, your Super Value is about to throw out anything. A guy goes around in a freezer van, he throws it into a freezer van, it all gets frozen straight away. Now, if you're in your local community, you tell your local community officer, you're running short on money and you need a few weeks of food, he drops you down boxes and boxes of frozen food that was about to go off. Now, half of that food, I got three full boxes, three weeks worth of food, a boxes on board by a local community officer in Norway before I left and I wasn't even a citizen. So, and that was, I was getting the best of Parma ham, steaks, mints, meatballs, sausages, beans, the whole lot, you know? And for me, I, it, my food cost along this whole journey has been very minimal. I just hit one spot, it's a gold spot, and I know, here, I'll stay here for a few days, I'll go through their bins every single day, I'll keep the place clean, I'll take out what's good, I'll leave what's bad. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't go off. They don't realize insurance companies are insurance companies. They're there to make money also, Vampires Excel. So if you think about reality, reality is this bad. Come on, guys, take the plastic off. Like, realistically, we're trying to survive. The planet's not going to survive if we keep thinking about profit instead of eliminating all modern forms of transportation you eliminate every modern form of transportation importation to this country and you create perfect sustainability within every micro communities cottage industries boom if you eliminate importation and exportation to this country you create a very unique identity of ireland you create a culture that doesn't exist anywhere in the world ireland's heritage ireland's culture starts to flourish. Ireland's uniqueness starts to flourish because our ingredients start to grow and we start to use them in Ireland only. We start to use our knowledge of clothes in Ireland, our wool in Ireland, our letters in Ireland. Keep it in Ireland. Why are we importing things? It doesn't make us any better. It just makes us an imported cheap entity when we could be a very high quality, unique entity of a country that is fully sustainable, non-using modern forms of transportation, non-using unrenewable fuel, the amount of fuel we waste. We could be the greenest country in the world by one simple rule of eliminating importations and like excelling on our own products and use that to sell to local. If you localize, if you cut off cars and you cut off everything, modern forms of unrenewable fuel, everything localizes. And when everything localizes, uniqueness and quality excel when everything localizes. When you start to transport, the more hands something has to be passed through, the more toxic something becomes. Processed food becomes processed because there's so many different ingredients. Food becomes toxic because there's so many different hands, so many times, so much space that it has to go through before it gets to the destination. So if we can localize everything, not only do we enhance quality of everything, we then become in a unique identity and we have an identity instead of globalizing. We're globalizing now that nothing's becoming Irish anymore. There's nothing that we own. It's just a, 
a globalized transit of cheap crap that we're trying to sell around and everyone is getting ill from all this transportation these even the virus is a huge a thing that you should say right if we don't have all this transportation unnecessary travel going on these viruses wouldn't affect Ireland and Ireland could be a very green country but there's a lot more to it but I would be doing it too no two two really powerful messages uh, both of you have brought something different to the table um, two two kind of experiences you both kind of have been through in one way shape or form like you haven't uh, Dara been tasked with, with the mission essentially to you know get the ram to Ireland while carrying a fire some could say nearly losing your life on several uh, occasions but you know you're here now and, and uh, you know the message and the story you can spread then is something you couldn't make up it's something you couldn't write it, it's happened it's raw it's genuine and um, I think it was a pleasure chatting to you I think I, I'd said before this you know a solid 45 minutes and I'd be happy and we've we've just touched over the two hour mark, and I feel I could go for another four hours. Um, <laughs> I want to. I could. I, I mean, I I'm not just saying that. Like when chat is good, when conversations are good, they're good. You know what I mean? You don't need to. You don't feel the need to put a time on it. Um, but Glenn then bringing a completely different aspect to the table, something he has lived, something he's so brave and and ambitious to help others. Like I mean, you say in your own podcast, Glenn where I link below on this, if you could help just one more person or even one person alone while spreading your message, I mean, that's your job done. I think you're spreading your message and it's reaching a lot more than one one person, a lot more than two, three, four people. Um, I said it, Dara, when you slipped out and you were up uh, just having a yap for a moment, I didn't ask Glenn onto the podcast um, because he's on a pirate ship and, and that gets people's attention. Or I didn't ask him because... Um, I wanted to hear your story about the pirate ship. I didn't ask for that, but the pirate ship is the reason I found you two. So people are talking about it on social media and it's being shared and whatever. So that caught my eye. But then I looked deeper and I start watching the stories and then I was kind of not really looking at the stories for the ship. I was kind of looking at the stories for the people that were on the ship. And yeah. this is why I'm going to just say something quickly. I want to say thank you once again for the two of you coming on and giving me your time. Quite a busy day. And you know it was quite a busy day because you weren't really as active on social media, maybe sharing here and there. You were obviously graphing away all day and probably using what? the time for, you know, using the time. So like a day like that and you still have time for me to come on, like that That just shows how much love and respect there is there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time, brothers. Right. Yeah, Absolute legend, yeah. Stay safe. Stay away from them storms. And... Uh, <laughs> keep, keep, us, keep us updated on, on the grub that you are eating um, right, legend, loving, right? loving the story so loving the journey right talk to you later lads coffee and a little bit of conversation